Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Policy Pack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also by Liquidware, the creators of Profile Unity, FlexApp, and Stratosphere UX, the premier UEM app layering and visibility solutions. And also, of course, by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And on this, the third anniversary of this podcast, I would just like to re-emphasize the importance of having sponsors, just to go out of pocket for the hosting, for the domain, and even just for the time that I spend. I spend upwards of three hours a week doing this podcast. I wouldn't be able to do it without sponsors. My wife just wouldn't tolerate it. So if you enjoy the show each week, you have the sponsors to thank. And that's Goliath Technologies, Policy Pack Software, and Liquidware. So thank you to them again. And now for some news. Microsoft posted a public statement this week to address the SolarWinds sunburst breach that has had very far-reaching implications for U.S. government agencies and other SolarWinds customers. I've covered this ongoing story over the last two episodes, so if you somehow missed the story completely, maybe you were out for the holidays and you just completely switched off, then I encourage you to go back and listen to the last two episodes and then listen to this one. But for those already up on this story, a new development is in Microsoft's recent statement. They have said, quote, our investigation into our own environment has found no evidence of access to production services or customer data. The investigation, which is ongoing, has also found no indications that our systems were used to attack others. As we previously reported, we detected malicious SolarWinds applications in our environment which we isolated and removed. Having investigated further, we can now report that we have not found evidence of the common tools, techniques, and procedures related to the abuse of forged SAML tokens against our corporate domains. Our investigation has, however, revealed attempted activities beyond just the presence of malicious SolarWinds code in our environment. This activity has not put at risk the security of our services or any customer data, but we want to be transparent and share what we're learning as we combat what we believe is a very sophisticated nation-state actor. We detected unusual activity with a small number of internal accounts, and upon review, we discovered one account had been used to view source code in a number of source code repositories. The account did not have permissions to modify any code or engineering systems, and our investigation further confirmed no changes were made. These accounts were investigated and remediated, end quote. So typically when covering stories like this, I don't have such long quotes, but I felt it was important in this instance to quote a lot of that statement from Microsoft because there are some other outlets out there that are reporting on this story. And in my opinion, they seem to be sensationalizing it 
and maybe not giving the full context of what Microsoft have stated. They're essentially saying that Microsoft has admitted to being like attacked or breached due to the sunburst hack of SolarWinds. And that's not really the case. And in actual fact, you know, from that statement, they found issues in their environment that are not necessarily related to solar winds, but are worrying nonetheless. And very interesting, further in their statement, they say that they do not keep their source code under wraps. They have driven toward an open source ideology, and so they assume everyone has access to the code and puts protections in place with that understanding. And that's pretty interesting because if you've been following the Microsoft story over the last few years, they moved to this open source ideology under Satya Nadella. So that might actually pay dividends here as they've developed the mentality that this is open source so everyone has access to it. So they'll be able to find areas for attack through the code if they want. So we must keep that in mind when protecting our environment. And Microsoft state that they plan their security with an quote, assume breach, end quote, philosophy, and layer in defense in-depth protections and controls to stop attackers sooner when they do gain access. They have found evidence of attempted activities which were thwarted by their protections and have used their statement as a way to reiterate the value of following industry best practices such as some that they outlined, like implementing privileged access workstations as part of strategy to protect privileged accounts. They've stated that they will provide additional updates if and when they discover new information to help inform and enable the community. Kim Zetter, who had a lot of great information about the SolarWinds hack from the very beginning, wrote an article recently for TheIntercept.com about critical core infrastructure companies who have been identified as running the compromised version of SolarWinds, which could potentially have some serious ramifications. This sunburst story is going to go on and on and on. So many companies use SolarWinds, and you've got to assume that if the hack was put into the DLL over a year ago, that a lot of organizations would have upgraded to a version that had been compromised. So it's not all that surprising that, you know, electric companies, for example, running SolarWinds may have run the affected version. Now, what that means in the long term in terms of their security and what the hackers might do with the information they've gained from accessing their network, it remains to be seen, which is why this story is probably just going to roll on and on and on. And a quick side note related to the hack, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has published a really comprehensive guidance. And actually, this is a comprehensive guidance, but it's actually a supplemental guidance in addition to the one that they issued a couple of weeks ago. If you're in information security, this is one you'll definitely want to read up on. And hey, if you work in IT these days, you're pretty much an infosec. We all have to think with the security mindset, so it's definitely worth checking out. And I'll share a link to that with this episode, which is episode 157, and you'll find it on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode. 
And for a sign of how 2021 and the future may proceed, the Financial Times reported this week that the amount of sublease inventory in many U.S. markets is at or exceeding levels reached in the aftermath of both the dot-com bust and the 2008 financial crisis, according to brokers, with expectations that it will expand further. An expert that they referenced in the article believes that demand for office space could be down 10 to 15% even after the economy recovers. So I feel like I've kind of covered this angle and beat it into the ground, but work from home is here to stay, at least in some capacity. Maybe not full-time remote work for all employees, but at least partial remote work. And that's being reflected in movements within real estate, according to this article. Apple have lost a lawsuit against a company called Corillium that was founded in 2017. Corillium provide a virtual iPhone, allowing you to run an iPhone for testing of apps without the need for having an actual iPhone. The judge in the case ruled that Corillium's creation of virtual iPhones was not a copyright violation, in part because it was designed to help improve the security for all iPhone users. Pretty interesting angle from the judge. Corillium wasn't creating a competing product for consumers, rather it was a research tool for a comparatively small number of customers. According to the Washington Post, Apple did not immediately respond to a request for comment about the lawsuit. And in the lawsuit, Apple argued that Corillium's products could be dangerous if they fall into the wrong hands because security flaws discovered by Corillium could be used to hack iPhones. So they're kind of flipping what the judge said and suggesting this could be a security hole, which I don't think that holds any water really. Interestingly, the article states that Apple initially actually attempted to acquire Corillium in 2018. But when the acquisition talk stalled, Apple decided to sue Corillium last year instead, which I'm assuming this means they're either gonna drag this case out and come at them again with an appeal and or try to acquire them again. Oh, Apple. And speaking of Apple, on the day after Christmas, around 4.45 a.m. Eastern, Apple started experiencing an outage with its iCloud services that prevented users from logging into the service, accessing files, or setting up new devices, which I can tell you in healthcare IT at the moment, those iPads are just flying out the door at the moment. Well, <laughs> maybe not flying out the door, but flying around hospitals to enable patients to be able to speak to their families while they're isolating due to COVID. So the ability to setting up new devices is very, very important. And unfortunately, according to bleepingcomputer.com, this issue lasted for about 36 hours. So for 36 hours, people were struggling to set up new devices. At the time of this recording, Apple has not disclosed any cause for the issue, which again, oh, Apple. <laughs> Seems like they just play from a different hymn sheet than a lot of organizations. And this is just no opinion, but they might want to mature a little bit since they're getting such a large foothold in enterprise. There's a reason why other organizations that sell into enterprise IT do things the way that they do. So step it up, Apple. 
Sticking with bleepingcomputer.com for this next one, but they have reported that Microsoft has added support for security incident email notifications to the Microsoft 365 Defender Enterprise Threat Protection Solution. A mouthful. The email notification contains important details about the incident, like the incident name, severity, categories, and more. Depending on the way they are configured, these email notifications can be received based on incident severity or by device group. So if you're using Microsoft 365 Defender, you may want to check out these notifications to keep yourself ahead of the game. The BBC have reported on a ransomware attack on the Hospital Group, which is a UK-based cosmetic surgery chain. The attack was allegedly carried out by Revel, or Revel, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, who claimed to have intimate photos of customers that are not a completely pleasant sight. And that's a quote from them. They are said to have obtained more than 900 gigs of patient photographs. On the part of the hospital group, they state that none of their patients' payment card details have been compromised, but at this stage, they understand that some of their patients' personal data may have been accessed. The company said it had emailed all their customers about the cyber attack and would contact individuals who may have had more personal details compromised. So this is kind of a nightmare scenario too. So, you know, these patients more than likely don't want their before photos and maybe even some of their after photos if it's immediately post-surgery and things are a little bit raw. Granted, I'm sure they picked flattering after photos since they're selling it as part of their service. But the before photos would be kind of worrying for some people. This reminds me a little bit about a story that I covered last year regarding a Finnish psychotherapy company who got hacked and their patients' therapy session notes were being posted online by the attacker group. So this stuff is becoming a little more common and it's very, very scary. These are things that should never be leaked. In more cheerful news, Stripe have announced support for using Windows Hello for their multi-factor authentication. They have a quick how-to guide on their support site, and I'll share that with this episode if you're interested in it. And if you're not familiar with Stripe, you should check them out. It's a pretty good alternative to PayPal, in my opinion. And in a quick hit, a quick reminder, as it's now 2021, Flash Player is officially end of life. So get rid of it as soon as possible if you can. And in some pretty terrible news, after a report that fellow community member Christian Miller is unfortunately going through a very tough time. His wife was bitten by a mosquito and has developed dengue fever. He states that unfortunately she also developed a blood clot in her head due to the severity of the disease and it currently measures about 1.2 inches. And it may require surgery to remove immediately if the medication that she's on does not help dissipate it. She also had a plasma leakage into her stomach and due to complications, her liver is starting to fail. And in a more recent update, unfortunately the hospital ran out of her blood type. So they had to buy her blood or her blood type from another hospital to help treat her. As you can imagine, this has been going on several weeks and they keep having to try new treatments, buy in blood. It's becoming very expensive 
for Christian and his family, and he's stating that they're running out of money, they're running out of resources, and they really need some help. So if you could find it in your heart to help out a fellow community member, Christian Miller, I'll share a link with this episode to a GoFundMe he's set up. He's looking to raise about 30000 Canadian dollars to try and help pay for his wife's treatment. Things are looking really bad right now. I just like to pass on my well wishes to Christian and his family, and I really hope that his wife can pull through. And before I wrap up the news for this week, I'd like to congratulate Chantel, the winner of my fantasy NFL competition, who won the prize of a jersey of her choice. And now for the second time in a row for winners of my fantasy sports competitions, she's decided that the jersey that she's selecting is going to be given away as a gift. Congrats again. And if you'd like to play in some of these competitions that I set up, keep listening to the podcast. I promote them as the competitions get opened up. So I'll share them likely later this year when the leagues kick off. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. In what's becoming an annual tradition for the podcast in the third year running, rather than get into some new scripts, tricks, and tips, which I'll bring in, which I'll bring back to the episode next week, I've already got a list of them from this week to feature next week, I'm going to go through some of the highlights from the previous year's scripts, tricks, and tips, if you don't mind. So first up was one that was actually shared by Thorsten, no surprise, I've featured him a lot over the last year, but it's pretty important for security. He shared a really handy PowerShell script or PowerShell module for get-gpp-password, which searches a domain controller for the groups.xml, schedule-tasks.xml, services.xml, and data sources.xml, and returns any plain text passwords that it might find. So for securing those passwords, this is one you'll definitely want to run against your domain controllers to make sure that you're all copacetic. Next one up is viewdns.info which is just awesome. And I featured it pretty recently, I believe. Um, but with this, you can do pretty much every kind of IP and DNS lookup imaginable, including checking to see if a domain is available in Iran and China through their infamous firewalls. And if you're using a host provider, you can see what other domains are running on the same servers as your own domain. So it's really, really useful stuff. It can do that and a lot more. I think that together with services like Qualysys, Shodan. This is a really great resource for anyone using hosting services to make sure that their site is secure as possible and also just in good running order. And of course, I'd have to feature James Rankin among the top scripts, tricks, and tips. James is a blogging machine. He turns out high quality and highly detailed blog posts like no other. I could have featured multiple blog posts from him on this year's best of, like his blog posts on Teams and FSLogix, but in the end I decided to only highlight one which selfishly promotes the crusade that I am on. In this blog post, James goes through reasons for not using network drives on Citrix virtual apps and desktops. This is something I'm pretty passionate about too for a lot of different reasons. If you work somewhere that has a lot of map network drives and you're wondering what's the big deal, check out James's excellent blog post and he'll probably change your mind. This year, Steve Sifu unloaded an incredible thread of tweets 
going into an amazing comprehensive detail of the Windows logon process and every single step along the way. It was really fascinating. And this is one of those things that I feel like everyone in IT should read. So if you haven't read it yet, this is your chance. Check it out and I'll share it with this episode. So a little while ago, Miner.org shared their list of the 25 most dangerous software weaknesses. And these weaknesses are dangerous because they're often easy to find, exploit, and can allow adversaries to completely take over a system, steal data, or prevent an application from working. The top 25 is a valuable community resource that can help developers, testers, and users, as well as PMs, security researchers, and educators provide insight into the most severe and current security weaknesses. So security and ransomware attacks and phishing attacks and all kinds of different attacks were a pretty common thread throughout the podcast this year. And this is one that definitely helps to inform you about what were the most prevalent threats of 2020 in terms of InfoSec, so check that out. Iron Man Software shared their top 50 PowerShell modules this year. It includes a Selenium module for unit testing, a Toast notification module for popping up those cool Toast notifications, and much more. So check that out if you're into your PowerShell. The awesome Johan shared a script for detecting several different VPNs that you might be running. And this was pretty important this year, obviously with the work from home surge. So his script can help you detect if Palo Alto Global Protect is running, Cisco, Juniper, Dell VPN or SonicWall, F5 Networks VPN and more. So if you have the need to put that in a script, you should check this out. And earlier this year, ControlUp made their very popular analyze user logon script available for use by anyone. No need to have control up to run the script or be a paying customer, which is awesome. Developed by Guy Leach and with a lot of help from Trent Tai, I believe. The script is a killer for ascertaining what a user's true logon duration is. So there's various different tools out there for analyzing a user logon, but they tend to be very inconsistent. This is a really, really great way of analyzing that logon duration and breaking it down very granularly too. Jeremy Moskowitz is someone who also had a bumper year when it comes to churning out top quality blog posts. You should check out his WVD blog post, but the one I want to highlight here is his blog post on MSIX AppAttach. This is by far the best blog post for anyone looking to get started to try it out. If you follow his blog post, you don't even have to have MSIX packages to try it. He points you in the direction to grab some pre-packaged MSIX packages to wrap up into your app attach layers. So check out that blog post if you want to get started. On a quick topic on MSIX, something else I featured in the segment this year, MSIX Hero. This is a really awesome tool making things pretty simple for doing things like signing your MSIX packages, for generating the VHDs for your MSIX packages to get them ready for app attach and much more. It's definitely one worth having in your tool belt, so check that out. Along with Master Packager, MSIX Hero is one of my go-to tools this year. And with Microsoft Technologies and kind of a play into AppAttach, Windows Virtual Desktop had a really big year this year. And my buddy, Neil, created the WVD Community, which you can find at wvdcommunity.com. If you're not touching WVD in your environment right now, 
it's likely that you're at least going to kick the tires at some point. So it's good to get in now and be a part of the community. So check that out. Johan Schrewillis, I'm really sorry, <laughs> I butchered that last name. But Johan shared an absolutely beautiful custom user interface that you can use in your SECM task sequences. So that's it. I mean, it doesn't sound very impressive just saying that, but you've got to see this. Uh, if you want to, you can check out the video version of the podcast on YouTube and you'll be able to see it for yourself. Or I'll share a link and you'll be able to see it within the blog post. It's very, very pretty. It's going to be something you'll want to put into your environment if you use task sequences, which almost everyone does. And I couldn't have a best of without including something from Guy Leach. So the one that I picked is a quick PowerShell commandlet that shows all automatic services which aren't running. And it's a really simple one-liner. So this isn't by any means one of the scripts that he's put out that like obviously took a long time for him to create, but it's one that I feel is particularly useful because like if you're rebooting servers or services for patching or there's an issue in your environment, one of the first things you want to check if the server comes back up, but your service or your web app or your application or whatever isn't functioning correctly, one of the first things you want to do is check to make sure that any automatic services are started that should be started. So this is a really handy one-liner to check that. For everyone using FSLogix, which should be most people in enterprise now because Microsoft bought FSLogix, Jim Moyle had a really great script called FSL Shrink Disk, which helps you shrink the size of the virtual hard disks being used for your FSLogix profile containers. And there's substantial storage savings by running this script. So I encourage you to check it out and to at least test it first in your environment. And then you're probably going to be convinced and run it against your entire share of profiles. And this year, my buddy Andrew Morgan shared a really awesome tool on his GitHub repo called WoolMesh, or W-O-L Mesh, which is for Wake on Land Mesh. If, like me, you work somewhere where Wake on LAN is blocked on the network, this could be a great solution for you. It's Wake on LAN without the broadcast mechanism. You require a web server and a light agent to run on any machine that you'd like to be able to power on remotely. I believe the agent registers the PC with the backend web service. The web service uses REST APIs to trigger a power on of any PC on the same subnet as you require. So with the influx of work from home this year, if you support something like remote PC, direct access, or another product that enables users to remote into their desktop back in the office, this can come in very handy. Sometimes machines get accidentally shut down or someone inadvertently turns it off and you need to power back on remotely. And this is a perfect solution for that. Nearsoft tools have created some really great tools, including an advanced run tool to easily launch a program with the desired run options directly from Windows Explorer. So check out nearsoft.net for this tool and a lot of other tools. They published quite a few this year that are definitely worth checking out. A pretty handy one, again, with remote work being so important this year and the ability to maybe test your environment out. There's an input-delay.glitch.me website, which don't worry, I'll share a link with it with this episode so you don't have to remember the URL. But if you want to be able to see what amount of delay is too annoying for a user interaction like typing, you're able to simulate 
input delay and figure out what the tolerance level is. So that's pretty cool. And my buddy Trent Tai this year shared a thread on Twitter on how you can measure how long your users sit at the logon banner screen using process monitor and filters. So one of the catches is that you need to be able to run the tracing before the users are logged on and the thread goes into how you can do that. And you might be surprised, or actually you're probably not surprised, if you have a logon banner screen, for example, running on your virtual desktops, you probably already know it's a big pain in the butt and it takes a long time. But if you wanna see just how long, follow Trent's thread and you'll be able to check that out for yourself. And finally, again, with just the way the year was, Microsoft Teams had a bumper year as well as Zoom. And there's a really great simple blog post by Tracy Vanderschiff on how to create a lobby waiting screen. So to customize the waiting screen for your Microsoft Teams live events. It's a very simple one. And I think the year was too crazy for most people to dive into that customization. But if you have the time now and you wanna personalize that Teams waiting screen a little bit more, check out this blog post. And that's it for another episode. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported the podcast over the last three years. Um, not just the sponsors, but also you for listening each and every week. I'm surprised by how popular the podcast has been. The listens are pretty consistent week on week. So thank you so much. And I wish you all the best for the year ahead. Happy New Year. <laughs>